0: Hey everyone, Mickey here. You are listening to Wikipedia, and this week on the podcast, I speak to Dr. Emily Kybird, chiropractor, movement specialist, strength enthusiast, podcast host, and Hashimoto's expert. We talk all about the definition, diagnosis, prognosis, and the lifestyle treatment for Hashimoto's, which is one of the most common autoimmune conditions, particularly prevalent in women. So we discuss. Dr. Emily's personal story and how she resolved her own Hashimoto's and she does a great deep dive into all of the things that helped her but then we step back and look at why women are more at risk of Hashimoto's. Other common risk factor triggers, such as dietary, lifestyle, and environmental, and what are some of the best starting points for anyone experiencing it, as it can be completely overwhelming to be told you have Hashimoto's, or not even realize you have Hashimoto's yet, but have a lot of these common signs and symptoms, because then the treatment plan can seem out of control in terms of what you might have to do with it. Emily has a ton of free resources on her website and it is absolutely worth touching base with her to get some initial advice on and in addition to that checking out her successful Thyroid Strong course. Her podcast actually is also called Thyroid Strong because this provides some accessible information on how to strength train to beat the fatigue, resolve symptoms and feel back to your normal self. But of course her Thyroid Strong course is more than that so there are many other experts that feature in the course that help you tackle many areas of the Hashimoto's diagnosis. So as I said Dr. Emily Kybird is a chiropractor, strength and movement specialist and an expert in Hashimoto's. And her mission is to optimize every patient's health in order to empower them to move smarter, stronger, and pain-free. She has had over 12 years of chiropractic experience and has predominantly worked in person with people till shifting to an online platform post-pandemic and she's worked extensively with people from all backgrounds from the corporate executive to celebrities and from professional athletes to weekend warriors and it is fair to say she is one of the most sought after people in her area of expertise because she uses her combined medical knowledge with health and wellness factors to create programs that can tackle issues of pain and fatigue and help individuals to get back their strength and their health. I have linked both Dr. Emily's website to this, uh, the notes of this podcast and also her podcast Thyroid Strong to the notes so you can easily find out where to, to find Emily. And she has a wealth of information. Absolutely follow her on Instagram too. Just before I crack into the interview, though, I'd like to remind you the best way to support the podcast is to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast listening platform. That increases the visibility of the podcast out there amongst literally thousands of other podcasts. All right, team, please enjoy this conversation I have with Dr. Emily Kybird. Emily, so stoked to be able to speak to you this morning, and when I went to socials and said, I am speaking to this woman about strength training and health for thyroid. I got so many messages from people who are like, I cannot wait to listen to that episode. Exciting. I can't wait to share. I know. So can you kick off by telling us a little bit about your background? Obviously, you're a chiropractor, but how did you sort of happen, not happen upon um, your area of expertise, but how did you get into it?
1: Yeah. So I've been a chiropractor since 2007, and I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's in 2016 after my firstborn, which is very common. Uh, Common postpartum and then also common perimenopause, menopause phase of life, those seasons of life. And it um, often goes undiagnosed because the symptoms are very similar, right? Postpartum thyroiditis, Hashimoto's, Perimenopause, menopause, Hashimoto's, the symptoms are very similar. And I went through conventional medicine, primary care, endocrinologists, multiple functional medicine doctors until I landed on my current one, who's now a dear friend, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. She took a ton of blood and she's like, You have an autoimmune condition. How come no one else has tested more than TSH? And I was like, I don't know. I'm just exhausted. Everyone told me it was because I was a new mom. I like, whatever you do, I will do. Like, tell me what to do and I'll do it. And I just want to feel better because this cannot be my life. And luckily I went into remission doing some of the functional medicine things, lifestyle changes, part of them. One of those things was changing how I was working out. And Gabrielle in my office at the time was about three blocks from each other in New York city. And so she was treating autoimmune patients as some of her population through the functional medicine aspect but she's like these people have injuries they're complaining of joint pain muscle aches which is a common complaint with hashimotos and they need to get strong and they need some rehab they need your help so we would co-treat all these autoimmune patients um with really in my opinion the best two combinations of functional medicine and then a rehab strength training approach and i started to have women ask me like oh well my sister's in florida can you help her and i was like yeah if she came to new york and i just kept getting like that was a recurring theme. So I also felt like a lot of this stuff I was saying over and over again and was kind of systematizing and creating a model out of it. And so put that model online and now was born my third baby <laughs> after my first two, <laughs> yeah. thyroid strong. Yeah. And you know, through even a second pregnancy, I have stayed in remission, which is, you know, a lot of women will their Hashimoto's will flare up. Their their uh, antibodies will elevate when they're in their pregnancy because pregnancy is a stressor. And now there's women all over the world doing thyroid strong. So Australia, um, Yukon, England, South Africa,
0: all over the world. So it's, uh, it's tough. Yeah. That's, that's amazing, Emily. And obviously I want to do a deep dive into what Hashimoto's is and some of the risk factors and symptoms. One of the one of the first things I want to ask you about is just what you said around um, pregnancy and perimenopause and menopause as being sort of risk at risk times for women. So what is it about those times that, um, is it people who are susceptible to autoimmune will flare up or is it something about those times of life, which make an autoimmune condition more susceptible, more likely? Like what is it?
1: Yeah, I think there's two pieces to that puzzle. One is Hormonal changes, right? Pregnancy, menopause to the biggest, other than puberty, to the biggest hormonal shifts in life. And also stressful times in life. You know, pregnancy, as I said, as a stressor, so much energy is going to growing a human being. And then the perimenopause places, you know, piece is there's a lot of shifts in life other than hormonal and like not feeling like yourself. And maybe there's shifts. Through that phase of life of like maybe starting to enter retirement and you know, assessing big things in life. I think the other piece is the symptoms are are similar. Therefore, if someone's going through menopause and is having that hormonal shift, they're just thinking, this is just menopause. Like I should just suck it up and deal with it. Versus it could be Hashimoto's, yeah. similar to postpartum my story was everyone's like, you're tired. Your baby's not sleeping. Your hair's falling, falling out. That's the postpartum hair loss. It's hard to lose the baby weight, like, you know, all the things. So I was like, all right, I guess this is normal versus maybe starting to look deeper into like, oh, maybe there is something else going on. So I think that's kind of two parts to the puzzle.
0: Yes, yeah, So interesting. So first, can you tell us What is Hashimoto's actually? Because I think there'll be people who just might not have even heard of the term sort of before. And um, yeah, let's start there.
1: Yeah. So Hashimoto's is an autoimmune condition Mm. where your body is attacking your own thyroid gland. Your thyroid gland is this little butterfly shaped gland on the front of your neck and releases hormones uh, required for every metabolic process in the body. Like every cell needs thyroid hormone. But your body attacks your thyroid gland as if it were a bacteria or a virus or some other foreign body. Women are three times more likely than men to develop Hashimoto's. Um, Part of Hashimoto's is hypothyroid, so an underactive thyroid gland. So everything kind of slows down, like your skin gets dry, your hair gets brittle. Your um nails get brittle, you get constipated, depression, anxiety, fatigue, everything kind of slows down due to that hypothyroid component. 90% of people who have hypothyroidism have Hashimoto's. Wow.
0: I did not realize it was that big.
1: Yes. And about at least in the states, there's about 20 million women diagnosed, but those are just the ones diagnosed. Many women go through multiple doctors. Sometimes get undiagnosed for 10 years, but have the symptoms, but don't get get diagnosed. So, and autoimmune conditions are more common these days than they were 20, 30 years ago.
0: So, a couple of questions. One is how do you diagnose Hashimoto's? So, labs.
1: Yeah. So, drawing a full thyroid panel, checking for thyroid antibodies. There's two different thyroid antibody tests one tests to see if there are thyroid antibodies attacking your actual thyroid gland. And then one checks to see if there's antibodies attacking uh, the thyroid hormone circulating through the blood. So some people will say, oh, well, I got my thyroid taken out, so I can't have Hashimoto's. I don't have a thyroid gland. Well, you can still have Hashimoto's because you can still have antibodies attacking the thyroid hormone circulating in the blood. So, uh, you know, they're usually your TSH, your thyroid stimulating hormone will start to go up. So that's a sign, um, along with thyroid antibodies. And then if sometimes women will experience swelling in their thyroid gland, so they'll get an ultrasound to see if there's any nodules, some symptoms of that could be literally pain on the front of your neck around your thyroid gland, looking like you have an enlarged thyroid gland or, Sometimes, if you swallow, some women will experience a clicking sensation. Probably because there's inflammation of their thyroid gland.
0: Okay, and so it's interesting that when you were investigating the sort of the the reason for why you were feeling so terrible, and your doctors were only testing TSH, why is it that they don't do a bit of a deeper dive? Because the Markers that you mentioned, like TSH, the thyroid anti- antibodies, at least one of them I know gets, can get tested um, in, in the lab tests. Why aren't people doing a deeper dive, particularly if it's on the rise? Um,
1: that's a good question. I think conventional medicine is, has different ranges and you know, for a fuller picture, you have to know what to do with those data points you know what I mean? And you don't know what to do with the data points other than just medication and sit and wait. Like if you don't have other recommendations, maybe you won't test more. I mean, the typical test is TSH or TSH T4 TPO antibodies. Yes, But if you go into a functional medicine doctor, they're going to check TSH, T3, T4, free T3, free T4, reverse T3, and then the two antibody tests. So it's like a more comprehensive picture. And then the functional medicine doctor's thinking, well, I know that women with um, Hashimoto's can also have elevated inflammatory markers. So then they're going to check inflammatory markers and they're going to check cholesterol because they know that cholesterol can be elevated with hypothyroidism and they're going to check ferritin and a full iron panel because they know that 50% of women with Hashimoto's have anemia. So if you're struggling with fatigue, you also want to rule out anemia. So I think it's just having the time to look at someone as a full human being versus, you know, my, my primary care appointments are like five, 10 minutes. And I've, I've actually, my, one of my primary care here in Colorado She's like, you know, I've actually taken the functional medicine course from Institute for Functional Medicine. I was like, that's amazing. She's like, yeah, but with, you know, the healthcare system, I don't have time to break it down. Like to take an intake with that depth would take an hour to an hour and a half. She's like, I don't have that time because of how our visits are built. And I don't have the time to then get that information and you know, recommend supplement protocols. She's like, I just don't have the time and it doesn't get paid by insurance.
0: So I don't do it, but she has the knowledge. Yeah. But do you know how frustrating that must be for her to be sitting there in these appointments, doing, going down one path, feeling like there's a real barrier to the other, to another way of doing it. And I think it's just, I'm um, not, this is a discussion about your primary care doctor, but it's almost like she'd have to make a decision, right? Actually, I need to, let this stuff go and take a chance and do this stuff if I'm going to utilize the information. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, a lot of functional
1: medicine doctors don't take insurance. So they're seen as very expensive, but the benefit is they do get to take the time to dive deep into potentially some inflammatory triggers or things that are causing inflammatory load on the body that could be triggering the autoimmune. Cause you know, Hashimoto's has a genetic component. Like my mother has thyroid issues. My sister has thyroid issues. Then there's the leaky gut component, like things passing through your gut lining that shouldn't, that then create an autoimmune response. And then there's environmental triggers. To deep dive into environmental triggers is is a very deep history. Yeah.
0: So Yeah, so interesting. Emily, you mentioned TPO antibodies, which is what we can get here. Is that the antibodies that are that sort of signal, uh, attacking the thyroid tissue or is it the thyroid antibodies in the blood?
1: Yeah, I think that one is the, um, is attacking the TPO is attacking the, um, the antibodies is picking that up in the
0: blood. Yeah. Okay. I yep. Interesting. And I mean, this is slight tangent, but I am quite interested reverse T3. What does that tell us?
1: Yeah. It's like the anti um, T3. So I am not an expert in blood work, but I do know what my functional medicine doctors order. Um, Amy Horniman would be a great, she has so many resources on like, she's very big awesome. into testing reverse T3. Yeah. Um, one of the things about reverse T3 that I do know is that it gives a very brief snapshot of what is going on with that uh, laboratory marker. So some conventional medicine docs don't see it as useful because it's such a brief kind of snapshot and sometimes it doesn't get covered by insurance and sometimes it takes a long time for the lab to get that back so like why test it if it's like going to take two
0: weeks to get that marker back yeah yeah yeah, yeah. okay interesting because i've also seen that on so here in new zealand um when we go to the doctor you basically t- get tsh you really have to or t- nt4 you have to push for t- T3, I don't even know how useful that is, to be fair. Um, uh, but we do have a company that does a complete thyroid panel. And one of the markets that they do have is they have the free T4 and T3, and they do have reverse T3 as well. Um, but it's users pay, user pays. As, so probably similar in that if you're seeing a functional medicine doctor in the States, you'd, you'd have to pay yeah. for that as well. Yeah, And
1: yeah. there's great. I mean, there's some laboratory testing companies like Paloma Health where you can get a lab kit sent to your house and they actually do like a finger prick and you put it on this card and then you send the card back. So you could potentially pay, not have to go to a lab to get it drawn. It would just be nice if it was standardized or if it was, you know, considered just part of comprehensive care.
0: Yeah, sure. And Emily, any reason why autoimmune is on the rise or Hashimoto's is on the rise Um, and women being more susceptible. Is it because we have these major shifts across our life cycle with pregnancy and perimenopause? Is that the reason why it's much more common in women, do you think, or do we just really not have intel on that?
1: Yeah, I think it's more common in women because of those hormonal shifts through our life. I think it's on the rise because there's more load on the body So some examples would be pesticide exposure can create inflammatory response. If you live, if you grew up near a golf course or even railroad tracks, railroad tracks get sprayed with pesticides once a week. Um, There's, you know, more chemicals in our food that we can't control. And I think there's more, you know, I think the way we build our homes has changed over the years. So water damage that could lead to mold or mycotoxins, you know, can hide behind walls, things in our in our water, like heavy metals in our water. So I think all those little factors that we're always getting exposed to, like I just did a heavy metal test and um, like I don't eat sushi and I don't eat, you know, fish that are high up on the food chain because they are potentially higher in heavy metals. And there's still like traces of mercury and lead that got picked up on the test, it's not massively elevated, but in ideal world, there would be none of that, but obviously it's coming from somewhere. So I think we're just getting more environmental exposure. I also think our foods are not foods anymore. You know, even if we're on the gluten-free, a lot of women feel much better gluten-free, dairy-free, sometimes on an autoimmune uh, paleo protocol, which we can talk about. And- yeah. I think our foods aren't, 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 aren't like real food. Like even if you eat a gluten-free pizza, let's just say there's, you know, there's uh guar gum and xanthan, gum, you know, like there's things in it that are trying to make it shelf stable that, you know, could create a leaky gut.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And with all of these things, is it something that you think that we all need to be concerned about with regards to our risk for autoimmune or are there people who are more, who are going to be more susceptible? And you mentioned, of course, the genetic component, like are there other things that make people more susceptible to autoimmune and tomatoes particularly?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's even just one genetic snip. It's called the HLA gene, the human leukocyte antigen. It's a main genetic factor related to autoimmune diseases um, so we can have genetic SNPs. I think it's do the environmental factors turn those on? Yeah, 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 you know? yeah. So yeah, there's definitely a genetic component, but I would like to believe we could try to do everything in our control from an environmental perspective yeah. to decrease that load.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So Emily, you did mention a couple of the symptoms that um, uh, before, but because we've sort of just talked about Hashimoto's and in some of the ways that it is and the way that it's diagnosed. Can you also just, again, talk, uh, just sort of give us a list of some of the symptoms that we might be looking out for. Yeah. So the two most common ones are difficulty
1: losing weight and fatigue, and you'll read that on a list, but when to actually feel it, it feels much more amplified. So I've seen women, they're like, I just gained 40 pounds in two months, or And I'm like, and nothing's really, nothing else has changed with your eating and your exercise. Yeah. Um, Extreme fatigue, like they can't get off the couch. Or if they work out just a little bit too hard, they're literally on the couch for three days. Um, Hair loss, especially like the outer third of your eyebrow. Brain fog. You start a sentence. You can't remember how you're going to finish it. Dry skin, brittle nails, brittle hair, always feeling cold. So cold sensitivity. So I remember wearing, I always used to wear a scarf. Like I wouldn't leave the house without a scarf. And I remember it was the middle of summer. It's like super humid and gross in New York. And I had a scarf and my <laughs> husband's like, what are you doing? Like, what is that around your neck? I, was like, I don't know. I just, I just feel like I need to keep this part of my body warm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Other symptoms would be anxiety, depression, constipation, joint pain, muscle aches, because our joints and our muscles need thyroid hormone. So if it's not getting enough, you can get muscle aches. And for that piece, it's really muscle aches and joint pains that move around the body without any sort of clear mechanism of injury. Oh, interesting. So when people would come into my office with frozen shoulder syndrome, I would ask them, have you had a thyroid panel? Have you checked your antibodies? Because a lot of women with Hashimoto's, especially during menopause, can get frozen shoulder. Every cell needs thyroid hormone. And- That joint pain and muscle aches that move around the body. So like one day it's their shoulder, two days later it's their knee, the next day it's their ankle, but they they didn't fall, they didn't trip, they didn't, you know, there was no clear mechanism of injury. And usually my first kind of thought is like, okay, so how's their thyroid doing?
0: And then have they been, you know, exposed to Lyme's disease? Okay, yeah, interesting. I know I talk to so many women who have frozen shoulder, and they have a frozen shoulder, and then sudden, and I'm I'm not sure how, but it sort of resolves itself. But then six months later, they've got another frozen shoulder. Is that like super common?
1: Right, because it's not it's not the it is the shoulder because there's a contraction of the capsule where the arm bone is in the socket, but That's super common and it's super painful and limiting. And like, you can't even like lift your arm to put it in your jacket or comb your hair. A lot of women can't even wash their own hair. And it's very long rehab. Like sometimes up to a year, 18 months, some women will go under anesthesia and they'll do a manipulation under anesthesia where they'll go under anesthesia and the doctor will literally like, like tear the tissue, like tear the capsule to break up the scar tissue. it's like, well, why is the scar tissue there? And what happens is women will do this rehab. It's like three times a week for 18 months. They'll do manipulation under anesthesia. They'll get better. And then six to 12 months, the other shoulder. And it's like so frustrating. Yet usually when those women start to, will have an underlying thyroid issue. And if you start to get that piece dialed in, they will heal quicker. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen that a lot.
0: Wow. So, Emily, you mentioned a couple of dietary um, sort of things and and risk factors. What are the dietary triggers for um, Hashimoto's? Or what are some of the things? Let's say I'm diagnosed with Hashimoto's. What are the things that I need to avoid?
1: A common recommendation is to go gluten free, and a lot of women will feel better. And one of the pieces is there's a protein in um, in wheat and in gluten that mimics. A thyroid hormone called gliadin. So the body gets confused. Um, So going gluten free, dairy free, usually low nightshades, which would be potatoes, uh, eggplants, peppers, red peppers, colored peppers. Some people will go on an autoimmune paleo diet, which is basically protein and veg. There's also things that are cut out, so like black pepper is um, not in there. So I did all those things. I didn't drink alcohol. I limited, I still drink coffee, but I wasn't doing three coffees a day. (laughs) I was only doing one. And then I also went on a low histamine diet because I was having histamine issues. Um, So I had hormonal eczema on my hand. Every time I ate, my tongue would burn, my tongue would swell up. And I think the important piece, right, because a lot of people, when they start to make diet changes, can feel very limited. It can feel like, oh, I'm taking out all these things in my life. Only addressing diet is not enough, right? So if you only go on an elimination diet and not start to address potentially environmental factors, you're going to feel like you're on elimination diet forever. So I mean, my diet was super restrictive to like take out histamines means like no oranges, spinach, berries, could only have steak that was like not left out, like no dry aged steak, Uh, no leftovers. So sometimes the diet piece is like feels very restrictive, but you need to deal with like starting to dive deeper into the root causes so that you can go back to eating those things. So you can start to change your gut microbiome, change your gut health. So you can go back to eating those things. So for example, you know, I was on that very restrictive diet for probably two and a half, three years, but now I can eat avocado, which is a high histamine food. I can, I eat dairy, so I can eat yogurt. Um, I eat nightshades. I still try to like really prioritize protein and vegetables. Um, But now I can enjoy those foods because I worked on my gut health, because I moved out of a moldy apartment and I killed some parasites and, you know, did all those like root cause steps, which I think people just stop at the diet and then get frustrated and then, you know, just go back to like ham hogging gluten. (laughs) I also think gluten in the States is like so different than, you know, in other parts of the world. Like I can eat gluten in Europe and I'm fine
0: yeah is it but, to do and i wonder i i hear that too and i've heard that it's to do with the type of flour being like zero zero or something compared to whatever it is in the states but also my time in the states and i've like had bread and stuff it's really sweet like i wonder if it's oh, like not just the the gluten stuff That's all the i just think bread bread at um Bread itself, but it's the what other things that also contribute that might be promoting additional inflammatory response, or I don't know. Yeah, for sure. I mean, stuff
1: is sprayed with a lot of <laughs> glycosamine here. <laughs> yeah. Good old Monsanto. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I think that's probably part of it. I think the soil being totally depleted of any nutrients
0: um, is probably part of it. Yeah. Yeah. So. And you know what, I often think about this with with diet, because as you describe the the type of approach that could be necessary if you're going to get on top and really heal from Hashimoto's and and make yourself more resilient, I suppose, Um, it sounds really restrictive, but if your symptoms are as bad as what you were describing yours were, Emily, and what other people experience, then really, instead of it being, gosh, that's so restrictive, it's more like, this is now an opportunity to actually feel better and to do the things that eventually I'm going to feel more like the person I am rather than this shell of myself. As I hear a lot of women sort of describe um, and I'm just not able to um, sort of function the way I might normally. So I always try and look at it from, from that, you know, it's an opportunity to feel better sort of perspective too. Yeah.
1: I mean, I was just on a call with some women inside Thyroid Strong and the two women, two different parts of the country, one was in Utah, one was in Florida, both expressed that their families think they're crazy with the symptoms and their families don't get them and their family wants to go on an hour walk, but the woman can only tolerate a 20-minute walk because she has exercise intolerance and they don't get it. And one of her kids is like, mommy, you're like really slowing down. You used to have so much energy and- and yeah, it can feel like very isolating and very alienating. I remember um, I was having chemical sensitivity just due to the histamine response uh, when I was first diagnosed. And I would, and this is very challenging in New York because you're just like barrage of smells and stimulus. I'd be walking probably 50 feet behind someone and I could smell if they washed their clothes in Tide. Oh, Jeez. And it was, it was like a barrage, like I couldn't function. Like everything was just like sensory overload. So um yeah, it can feel very isolating, probably contributes to any sort of depression issues along with low thyroid <laughs> hormones and function. But um I think you know, to like keep the hope yes. that there are people out there that
0: can help turn it around. So Emily, um, even, so you were on, you were, you had a protocol in place for you. You were doing, um, all the things whilst you were on a particular diet for two and a half years, in addition to the other stuff, how long did it take before you started to feel better?
1: It probably took nine months to start to feel better. I'd say a year and a half to really feel like myself again. And then you know, I think part of the journey, everyone, a lot of women think it's linear. They're like, I'm only going to feel better, but it's really kind of an ebb and flow. And, you know, I was on different, you know, in functional medicine, they call it protocols or supplement protocols. So one of them was three months of mold detox, taking binders, which can make you feel like death and getting in a sauna three to four times a week and sweating. And then I was on a heavy metal protocol, which will also make you feel like death and look like death and have these dark circles under your eyes. And, you know, then I was on a parasite protocol, which, you know, parasite meds and die off and those symptoms, you feel like terrible, but you're like, I know this is going to make me feel better. But right now, when you're in it, death. So (laughs) I think it's more of like an ebb and flow. But after each protocol, I was like, oh, okay, I feel a little better. I'm not waking up totally tanked out, Um, brain fog was better. Like everything was getting better little by little. But so nine months, which a lot of women will think that's a long time, but if you've been sick for years,
0: nine months is actually probably not that long. Yeah. Yeah. Such a good point. And Emily, of course you mentioned that one of the women that um, you were on the call with has exercise intolerance. And of course, this is what I want to chat to you about um, as well as the the relationship with exercise and Hashimoto's and obviously the strength training component. First, is exercise intolerance a common sort of um factor with Hashimoto's?
1: Yeah, I mean I think it kind of goes along and it goes hand in hand with the fatigue. Of course, yeah. So, when I think of fatigue, I think okay, how can we boost our mitochondria to be more robust, which are the powerhouses of our cells. Um And exercise intolerance basically means what it sounds like. It's like you can't exercise as long or as hard as maybe you once did. Some women will experience vertigo or drop attacks or a feeling of POTS. Like they feel like they're going to faint if they overdo it. Usually those women experience low blood pressure. A lot of women I've noticed with Autoimmune conditions have an element of tissue laxity or hypermobility, and that translates. That's a clinical observation. I haven't found any research on that, but there that does translate to um, the integrity of the walls of your veins. And there is research on this, especially more around kind of like an earlier Danlos, which is a genetic hypermobility. But those people will have low blood pressure, and they'll feel faint if if they push themselves right if their heart rate goes up because the veins don't have the integrity to in their walls to push the blood out of their legs and so the blood's not coming back up the body and so their blood pressure drops and they'll have those drop attacks they'll have that postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome so i've seen that that hypermobility piece in a lot of the autoimmune women I think that can contribute to exercise intolerance. So, you know, there's different ways to feed your mitochondria, like taking omegas, omega-3 can help with mitochondrial health, getting sunshine um, on your face, different supplements, vitamin D supplements, um, resetting your circadian rhythm. So like you're trying to wake up at the same time every day. So there's different things you can start to do that feel like little baby steps that you can integrate into your lifestyle. And I think another piece is, you know, feeding your muscle tissue appropriately because a lot of women, because of the hypothyroidism have a harder time maintaining their muscle mass. So they're like, sometimes you see a woman and it's like kind of like a, like a skinny fat appearance. Like they just don't have like the muscle, the muscle mass. And so feeding that muscle tissue with resistance training and protein Will also start to help them increase their resistance, their exercise tolerance.
0: Yeah, and so when you were um, sick and you were sort of coming, you know, uh, through your Hashimoto's experience, were you strength training at the time, or was that something that you? Took on board as part of your own sort of treatment. And that's how you then um, became really interested in it and also sharing the information with others. Yeah. I mean, I had
1: been strength training since high school um, for different sports. But, you know, I think when I was in New York, I was really into the boutique group fitness scene. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like different studios popping up at all every week. So I was doing a lot of cycling, a lot of soul cycle. Um, sometimes I would do doubles, so like 90 minutes of cycling. Oh, Shame. I know. And then I would do, um, or i do soul cycle, and then I'd walk across the street and go to Barry's Boot Camp, which is like <laughs> lower low, lower weights, and then you'd get on a treadmill and you'd yeah, kind of yeah. do intervals of high-intensity interval training. So, you know, I was burning out my adrenals (laughs) and (laughs) doing that, trying to do that five days a week. And I wasn't necessarily losing weight, which I was like, this is really weird. Why isn't that happening? And it was exhausting. I was exhausted on top of having an 18 month old at the time. And I had a trainer in my clinic named uh, Matt Semerich. He'd been a trainer for 22 years. And he kind of pulled me aside and said, this is exhausting watching you work out like this, <laughs> like running out of the office to go to a spin class. He's like, and you are exhausted. Like I I know you. And you need to like, let's do it smarter.
0: Yeah. Did you take it on board? Were you like when he said that we did you feel a bit confronted? Or were you like, actually, he's got a point?
1: I was like, you're totally right. I am exhausted. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't offended because he was a friend and we were like working together every day, treating patients together. So, you know, he put me on a resistance training program. It was like three days a week. And I was like, three days a week, that's it. He's like, that's it. And, you know, part of that was heavier weights, long rest breaks, and starting low reps, like not starting anything over five reps. But the goal was to hit that perceived exertion. If you were going to do a scale of what you know, zero to 10, 10's like, no way this weight's gonna come off. Like I can't pick it up. You wanna hit like a seven or eight. Like that's fatigue. That's where muscle gets challenged. That's where muscle grows or maintains. So that was the goal. And it felt better. It I definitely had to change my mindset of, but I'm not like covered in sweat and red in the face and feeling like I'm. Collapsed on the floor because I had such a quote unquote good workout. That was not the feeling after, but there was an endorphin release. I felt stronger. I could do the rest of my day, (laughs) not have to like take a nap afterwards. So it was a big shift mentally, but it was so good for me and so good for my body. And, you know, while dealing with all the functional medicine issues, it felt doable. I think continuing down that kind of cardio path which you know if you do a lot of cardio to a certain extent can break down muscle tissue if you already have a hard time maintaining your muscle mass you want to do everything you can to preserve your muscle tissue so right there's more mitochondria in muscle tissue the more muscle you have the more mitochondria the more energy you have so there's so much benefit to kind of looking at, at exercises how can i feed my muscle versus how can I get skinny or toned or- Burn those calories. You know, yeah, burn those calories, right? Yeah, to lose yeah. weight, especially because you know weight loss is one of the hardest, you know, one of the biggest struggles. Instead of seeing it as like, how do I lose the fat? Because it can be very shaming and blaming and you're stepping on a scale. Like, how can I feed my tissue, like my muscle tissue, knowing that the fat will come off if I do that? Like there will be a change in body composition. And so
0: how did that then lead to thyroid strong?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, through that process was probably also giving my adrenals a break and not totally like tanking them out by doing, you know, tons of cardio was, you know, weight was coming off. I was dealing with different environmental issues and had more energy, my eczema got better. My tongue didn't burn every time I ate. My chemical sensitivities got better. And I was doing that with the women in the clinic, co-treating them with Gabrielle. Um, and so turned that into thyroid strong. And there's definitely, you know, it can it can sound basic. It's like, okay, lift heavier. Less reps, take a longer rest break than I do. But I think, you know, part of working with different women over the years is if there was one cue to get everyone to the same position for good form, everyone would say it. But, you know, having to work with different bodies that move differently, some people sit all day, some people were, you know, used to be ultra marathoners, but then, you know, stop like bodies are built different. So, using different cues worked for different people. So, you know, a lot of women are like, wow, you like really explain how to do a deadlift. Like I know exactly where to put my feet. I know where my toes go, I know where my knees go. It's not just like step up to the kettlebell, sit your hips back, grab the bell, stand up. It's like when do I breathe? How do I breathe? How do I exhale? Um when it starts to get heavier, how does that change? And part of being, you know, looking up bodies from a movement and rehab perspective, like not a lot of people look at an autoimmune person and look at how they, you know, like you go to your primary care, your primary care is not going to be like, Oh, you have Hashimoto's. Let's watch you walk down the hall. Let's watch you see it. Like, see how you pick up a, like a barbell deadlift. Like that doesn't happen. Um, and I, you know, that clinical observation of seeing a lot of women with hypermobility, you don't want someone to stand up and then just hyper extend their knees and jam into their joints, right? You want them to learn how to foot dial. You want to learn to squeeze your glutes, how to engage your quads properly, how to like make sure you're not driving through your hips too much so you don't crank on your SI joints in your low back. So that was a big piece from a rehab perspective and also watching um how babies learn their movement patterns and hit their milestones and applying some of that knowledge to thyroid strong, like how you warm up. Like we don't use foam rollers. We don't stretch. You do like a very specific neurodevelopmental movement pattern to stimulate how we learn those movement patterns as babies. So, and then we work out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and then I imagine that you know the way that you describe the fatigue and the exhaustion and the exercise intolerance—that actually something like thyroid strong is actually awesome for a lot of people who would love to train but are currently not seeing the results or getting the same sort of uh, enjoyment from it because it hurts too much, because they're so exhausted and fatigued, and because it's just almost too much for them so something like thyroid strong therefore enables them to get what they want from their exercise but also know that they're doing themselves a favor
1: yeah i like to i just had a um a kettlebell trainer go through thyroid strong which i was like girl you know kettlebells you like teach other people how to use kettlebells <laughs> yeah and she's like you know some of the cueing in the course i've never heard before and i loved it and i'm going to use it with my clients and she shared I have her exact verbiage. I don't remember, but she's like, you feel so held like you're not going to injure yourself, especially because like if you've never picked up a weight before kettlebells can be very intimidating and scary and the gym can be scary. I still find the gym intimidating when I walk into a gym, um, even though I like to like deadlift really heavy. I'm like, okay, <laughs> all these dudes everywhere. Um, <laughs> She's like, yeah, you just feel so held. Like you're taken care of with the attention to detail of the setup and the programming and coming from another kettlebell trainer who's trained, you know, trained people for over 10 years. I was like, wow,
0: girl, thank you. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that's great. So, so can you actually just talk through the, what thyroid strong actually is? So how long is it? What? Frequency is it? What any other components in addition to obviously the the kettlebells and the exercise piece?
1: Yeah, it's there's a six week program and then there's a twelve week program depending whether you're have touched a weight before or not. All right, so if you've never touched a weight, it might take like twelve weeks to kind of start to feel like really comfortable. Um, workouts are three times a week. Beginner workouts are fifteen to twenty minutes the more intermediate workouts are 25 to 30 minutes because you don't, what what I don't want is someone comes to it and the, what happens, what could happen is that feeling of exercise intolerance or this feeling of like a Hashi flare up. Like someone's had their symptoms managed. They're kind of in a good place. Everything's not like a hundred percent and then they overdo it and then they feel like they have the flu they're extreme fatigue you know they feel like they can't get off the couch so it's programmed in a way so that someone we try to avoid that feeling or any sort of joint pain and then there is uh one of my friends Allison Morris she has a blog food by mars she does autoimmune paleo meal plans so there's a 6 week meal plan with like breakfast lunch dinner um for six weeks, which is pretty incredible. And then there's a bunch of interviews with different functional medicine doctors. Over the years, I've learned so much. I'm like in the middle of Institute for Functional Medicine right now myself going through their course, but it's like a two-year course. And um, I just wanted to bring on other people who were experts in their field to share That knowledge, because a lot of women come to the course, and they are, for example, a woman who was in Utah earlier today. She said, "My primary care is a 200 mile drive from me," and I was like, "I'm assuming that's like your endocrinologist." She's as well, like because she's so remote. So to have access, it's not like she's in New York City and there's functional medicine doctors, you know, in each part of town. Um. So I think it's important to just have the knowledge to ask the better questions, like to start to kind of, kind of like what you were saying is like TSH, T4, TPO, that's kind of the norm. You have to kind of be like, hey, can you also order? (laughs) Right. But you knew to ask that question. So I brought on different functional medicine doctor friends. So Gabrielle Lyon talks about how to eat to lose weight with Hashimoto's. Ralph Esposito, who's currently... The head of um, research for Athletic Greens, and he does a lot of research for Andrew Huberman and Peter Atiyah. He does a talk on adrenals and supplementation. And Anne Shippy talks about she's in Austin. She's a medical doctor. She talks about mold and mycotoxin exposure. And then I have Jill Krista, who's a naturopath up in Minnesota. She talks about mold from more of a naturopath um, approach, where she doesn't use binders unless you know. Absolutely necessary. So there's probably 12 modules of those. There's one with Alan Hopkins. He's a medical doctor also in Austin, talks all about labs, like way better than I could ever talk about labs, because he owns a lab company called Your Lab Works that you can order your own labs. Um, So I felt like that was an important piece. That could be a whole course unto itself, but it's the bonus section because, like I said, I think women asking better questions and just educating themselves just so much more um, power as they are in their Hashimoto's journey.
0: Yeah, for sure. Particularly if you are, you are constantly being told it's not that it's in your head, but Hey, these are fine. Like there's no reason in your bloods why you're feeling this way. Then that just leaves people. I talked to so many clients who, who feel like they've got, that no they're not being listened to or not being heard but in part it's you're right having the knowledge to know how to talk to your doctor or what to ask for and what avenues to go down I do have to say though Emily it sounds really overwhelming you know like all of the things that someone might need to think about if they're experiencing a lot of these symptoms like the mold thing for example that in New Zealand we had like a a water damage disaster sort of we were made aware of it like all the houses that were built in 1990 suddenly realized in the year 2000 that they all had water damage you know so you've got all these people living in houses like this that would cost hundreds of thousands to to fix up but then like people who live in like university towns the houses that they live in they just smell musty and really moldy like i always think when someone talks about mold like that's a tough nut to crack for so many people.
1: It is. And it's my kryptonite. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) yeah, And you can have genetics that, you know, I go in a moldy house and I can't finish a sentence and get a headache and need to take a nap. And my husband goes in and he's like, what? It's fine. What? Huh? (laughs) You know, it's just different genetics. (laughs) Yeah. Totally. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, so what is the first step what would be your sort of first recommendations for anyone who let's say they do have a diagnosis of Hashimoto's what what's the first thing that they should do uh
1: I think the first thing to do would be you know if medication is needed I think take the medication it can make you feel better yes and working is with a provider the
0: that you're talking about the- yeah there's
1: there's um there's different ones a lot of people will respond well to compounded so like a combination of t4 t3 Um. And, you know, a lot of people want to, you know, quote unquote, like heal their Hashimoto's naturally, but you know, if you need meds and it makes you feel better, like take the meds. And then I think start to do some of the lifestyle factors that will, that are easy dial movers. So like cut out gluten, cut out dairy, cut out alcohol, maybe focus on protein and veg and optimize your sleep. So making sure, because a lot of women will go to bed and they'll feel tired but wired, which is an adrenal issue, and um, you know resetting your circadian rhythm. So waking up at the same time every day, getting light on your face, direct sun, not through a window, first thirty minutes. Um, ruling out any sort of sleep apnea, so getting a sleep study, and then starting to change how you're working out. Like do do the basics right. Like how am I eating? How am I working out, like moving my body, and how am I sleeping? And then start to d- start to dig or find a provider that will help dig. Like that kind of takes the overwhelm out of it because you're like, my provider knows they're helping make the decisions. It doesn't feel so I'm doing this on my own. Um to start to dig into any sort of environmental triggers or help healing the leaky gut, you know, taking certain supplements. and um, Yeah. I mean, that's what I would start with. It's like, do the things that are within your control, you know, like if, you know, and everyone's different. So if someone tells me don't eat gluten, I'm like, great, don't eat gluten. Some women like hem and haw and ruminate and, you know, have been kind of on the, try to cut out gluten path for like a year. And, you know, I think just thinking about, okay, every decision and action I take is, could make me feel better. could make me feel worse and I get to make a choice. So yeah,
0: nice. Yeah, yeah, lovely, Emily. And obviously, you've got thyroid strong on your website, but you've also got a lot of free resources as well, like that people can go to download and just get a little bit more information. Like, do you want to share it? Like, if people go to your website, um, yeah, Dr. Emily is it do- Yeah, yeah, and yeah. the programs are there. There's
1: a blog. I put a blog out every other week, sometimes every week. I put out two podcasts a week, one with a guest, one with myself. Right. And um lots of information on Instagram, same Dr. Emily Kybird. And there's there's a bunch of free downloadable PDFs. I have yeah. one on, you know, like top 5 tips to lose weight with Hashimoto's. Amazing. Um one on symptoms, one on root causes, one's on fatigue. So those are all on the website and I think just trying to put as much helpful Information out there that someone with brain fog can digest easily. <laughs> it.
0: yeah, 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 It's one of
1: my goals. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. That's great. And actually, another thing which I did see um, before we wrap up on your Instagram was you jumping into like a, a frozen lake. Uh, <laughs> so cold water immersion is that actually is, is that something that's helpful for? Um, I know it's helpful in general, but particularly Hashimoto's or what do we know about that in the thyroid? Yeah,
1: there's only there's one research uh, paper out there on it, and it's actually it's it's cited in that post, in that yes. reel. Um and basically, I mean, it was low participants. It was 19 participants. It was related to like brown adipose tissue activation, and they found um the, I mean, the participants wore a cold best for two hours so different than okay yeah 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 different than like 30 second you know cold plunge but what they found was that there was a decrease in tsh there was um an increase in free t4 more than free t3 as a result of the cold stimulation and
0: then a decrease in tsh amazing yeah so yeah worth a shot did you have a do you have a uh, freezer at your house that you jump into?
1: Um, I don't, I just ordered one. One of my girlfriends is like really into cold plunging and she's like, Oh, you got to get this like $15,000. I was like, no, 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 no. (laughs) Let's just see if this is okay. First I'm looking at an ice barrel, which would be like kind of a step up, but, um, I want to see if my husband and I can make it consistent first. Yeah. Nice. Um, so I,
0: I'm like waiting for it. to, It's supposed to get delivered this week, so oh, fingers crossed. I've been trying to convince my husband that we need a freezer, uh, <laughs> so that's that's my first goal. And and I've been like two years of yeah. trying to convince him. He's like, "There's nowhere to put it," and I'm like, "I can find <laughs> somewhere to put it." But it's totally. inter- it's interesting though, isn't it? Because something like that, like it might be a transient change in your markers, those thyroid markers. Were they? I, I don't know if they were transient or or not. But I wonder whether. But if you do it frequently, like if, you know, then that transient almost becomes a, you know, a, a pattern. Yeah. I
1: hope so. I hope there's more research on it. I think that's the, that's the thing. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, Completely. So Emily, is there anything else that um, you want to share or that you feel that people would be, uh, people would need to know, um, other than, of course, going to your website, in and around Hashimoto's, the the symptoms, the potential treatments, and... Um,
1: the no, I think it's just like, hold the hope. Yeah. Like, whatever you're feeling doesn't have to be forever. And that... I think there's two kinds of Hashimoto's women. I think there's ones who they are their diagnosis and it very, it feels very kind of like a victim. And then there's women who are like, I am me, but I have Hashimoto's. So there's like this barrier from their diagnosis. And those are the ones who take action and they, you know, do kettlebell swings and they eat their protein and they dive into the root causes and they work with their doctor to play with their medication, um, adjust their medication. So Hopefully, to feel better in your body and feel like yourself, would be the latter. To like, I'm me.
0: I just happen to have Hashimoto's. Nice, and I can do something about it. One of my um, very good friends, Julian Taylor. She's also a nutritionist. She's 62. She has Hashimoto's. She's New Zealand's um, power lifting. It's a power lifting. That's what I'm thinking of. Uh, it's not Olympic lifting. It's powerlifting lifting. Um, champion, and she is amazing. You know, like she just has done all the things to help with her health. And now she's like killing it and weights. So and this was news is like of the last five years, she's gotten into powerlifting and, and stuff. I think it's amazing. 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 Yeah. Lovely Emily. So uh, where can people find you? Can you just say your website again? And of course yeah. I will put it in the show notes and, and links to your podcast as well. Sure. Uh, Dr. Emily Kybird, my
1: pot all my social handles are that. And then awesome. my podcast is called thyroid Drunk.
0: Brilliant. Easy. Emily, have a great day. Lovely to talk to you. Oh, thank you, Mickey. Alrighty. Hopefully you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed doing it. And Emily actually is a member of the same business group that I am in, which I was so excited to discover because I was such a fan of her work. And as I said, you can find Dr. kybird.com her website, it's in the show notes, along with a link to her podcast, Thyroid Strong. All right, team, next week on the podcast, I'm speaking to Charles Price, all about bone health. You know I'm big on that right now. Until then, though, you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, over on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin, or head over to my website, mickeywillidan.com, sign up to the recipe portal access, where for 12 bucks a month you get my weekly email, access to over 900 recipes updated on a weekly basis, and the opportunity to pick my brain on anything nutrition related through our online messaging platform. And get to join our Facebook group. I've actually just come from doing a live in there now, answering awesome questions related to where does body fat go when you lose it? And What shall I do for osteoarthritis? And what is my take on whey powder versus whey protein isolate powder? So you get answers to all of those questions and your questions in my Real Food Nutrition Facebook members only group also. All right, team, you have a great week. Talk to you soon. Bye.